press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists at The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Yoni Bashan. It's Friday, September 30. Patients in public hospitals are waiting three or even four times as long for elective surgery than what is being reported on official state government figures. A new report compiled by the Australian Medical Association reveals substantial blowouts in wait times for some specialties. Patients deemed non-urgent are waiting as long as 1,400 days to see a specialist at an outpatient clinic in Victoria and 700 days in Queensland. But the data is incomplete because some states, including New South Wales, do not publish wait times for outpatient clinics. An inquest into the disappearance of Melissa Caddick has heard another day of evidence from her husband, Anthony Coletti, about the circumstances leading up to the hours when she went missing from their Sydney home. That's coming up later in the episode. And pressure from billionaire activist Mike Cannon-Brooks has caused AGL to backflip on their commitment to coal with a decision to bring forward the closure of a coal-fired power station. More on that in a moment. Your energy bill could become greener, but there's a chance it could become more expensive in the coming years. On Thursday, AGL released a long-awaited reset of its strategy, announcing the closure of its Loyang A power station by 2035, or 10 years earlier than expected. The company said doing so would prevent up to 200 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions from entering the atmosphere. But the news also comes during a time of great tumult with the governance of the company and threats to take it over by the software billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks. Eric Johnston is The Australian's associate editor and he joins me now. Eric, this has been a volatile year, even a chaotic year leading up to this point. What's been happening at the company and what's made it grow such a conscience about wanting to save the planet? It's a remarkable turnaround from in just a period of about nine months or so. We've seen Australia's biggest carbon emitter, and it uh, operates a number of coal-fired power plants, turn around and suddenly find its own green streak. Pretty much all of this has come about because of a joint takeover bid led by Mike Cannon-Brooks, as we all know, the technology billionaire from Atlassian. And he partnered up with a Canadian firm called Brookfield, looking to take over this company. Their plan put to AGL at the start of the year was a bid to accelerate its exit from coal-fired power plants, invest $20 billion and build out a number of renewable projects to replace the generation capacity it was taking out of the market. AGL was firm on its path, saying, look, we've got a plan in place, thanks very much, go away. But Cannon Brooks wasn't one for going away and he ended up taking a significant stake of AGL and remaining as an agitator. So how much of this move would you say is AGL simply jumping onto the recent trend to get ahead of the renewable energy curve? Or is this about simply placating the shareholder activist that is Mike Cannon-Brooks? Yeah, it's a combination of of a number of things. So look, the transition to renewables, it is moving really quickly. Even in a period of 12 months, the number of projects have been announced by other companies and big investors outside of Cannon-Brooks, let's say the big super funds, Also, we're talking about global private equity and others talking about investing money and putting pressure on these companies to reinvent themselves and and provide a better pathway for a greener sort of outlook. So look, Cannon Brooks sparked the move for AGL, but AGL knows it has to move quickly. One of the things in that I'll just also point out, Yoni, is that AGL doesn't want to be left with a stranded asset. It doesn't want to be the last one in Australia operating a coal-fired power plant. 
that's going to be a really bad place for it to be in because by the time we get to 2040 or so, this coal-fired power plant will be costing a lot of money and there'll be a lot of pressure on AGL to keep it running just for the hell of it. Equally, shutting down Loyang A 10 years earlier than originally forecast is a shift that's going to cost a lot of money as well. AGL is guessing that it could cost up to $20 billion. Where is it going to get that money from? To make this shift happen, a lot needs to go right. So we can sit here today and talk about, yeah, let's move to a greener and renewables pathway. But there's a lot of things that need to be built. There's permits, there's technology that needs to be put in place. We don't even have the technology today to build out the capacity just to switch it on tomorrow. It has some really intricate planning and all the different parts of the Australia's complicated energy grid have got to be working together. So this is where we're up to at the start of this process. In terms of funding, though, the whole idea of this, the 20 billion, look, AGL is pretty confident it can get it. It's by no means a mega company, AGL. Its market cap was about $6 billion last time I checked, 6 to $7 billion. So it thinks it can fund it from its own cash flows. So any Energy companies do generate a lot of cash flows, but it's also going to have some willing investors, co-investors, big super funds. I'm sure it will go knocking to the doors and they'll love to be partners in major solar projects, I'm sure. And I suppose closing down the power station early could stand to have an adverse impact on the national energy market too, especially if AGL can't replace that power generation quickly enough. So how optimistic would you say that you are that the company is up to the task of doing this? The big challenge for AGL is that it has shown for at least for the last two to three years it has been completely accident prone in terms of its management credibility and its board credibility. It's imploded as well. Right now, AGL's got a chairman that's only been in place for less than a month. It hasn't even got a CEO. It only has an acting CEO in place. They say they're going out to the market to look for one, yet they're talking about a really complicated plan to build out renewable energy in the Australian market. So... Look, there's a lot of blue sky built into this ambition, or should we say green sky built into this ambition. I think it's going to be a pretty tough time. And um, I think for consumers, it might actually be a bit of a rocky path over the next five to 10 years. And a lot of companies need to do a lot of work to get this right. Eric Johnston is The Australian's Associate Editor. Coming up, we'll have the latest from the coronial inquiry into the disappearance of Sydney woman Melissa Caddick. The case of missing Sydney woman Melissa Caddick, a fraudster who ran a Ponzi scheme, was already intriguing and compelling enough, but a coronial inquiry into her disappearance has heard two days of evidence from her husband, Anthony Coletti, who gave something of an unusual performance in the witness box, including evidence that seemed to chop and change the timeline that led up to her vanishing from their Sydney home. Stephen Rice is the New South Wales editor for The Australian, and he joins me now. Stephen, Anthony Coletti, he has to be one of the most erratic and intriguing witnesses we've seen giving evidence at a coronial inquiry of this profile for quite some time. Can you take us through his evidence so far? Well, I'll try. But as you say, his evidence so far has been utterly confusing. In fact, uh, the other day, even the coroner herself said, I'm confused. He doesn't appear to have a very good grasp of what actually happened. And he doesn't 
even appear to have a very good grasp of what's coming out of his mouth. The headlines for the last week have suggested that maybe he is somehow responsible for her death. I don't want to prejudge the findings of the inquest, but it seems to me that on the evidence so far, that's pretty unlikely. In all honesty, he does seem to be hiding something, but I don't believe that he's been responsible for the death of his wife. He gives all the indication of not being very particularly savvy in the ways of the world. It's almost impossible to believe that he had any part in his wife's deceptions. Whether he knew of them, again, different question. He was in the box on Wednesday and his evidence was actually halted at some point because of some of the contradictory and erratic answers that he provided and also some of his own confusion at the questions from counsel assisting. How did his evidence hold up on Thursday by comparison? Was he slightly more articulate and in better shape? His answers have been pretty rambling. He claims that at one stage he was driving around the neighbourhood in his open-air $300,000 sports car blaring out music, the music that he knew that she would love in order to attract her out of whatever house she might have been in. On Thursday, he gave evidence that he deleted these texts from his own phone He was claiming that he'd gone around to this bloke's place to have an e-cigarette. He was willing to admit that, in fact, he'd gone around to smoke a joint, he says, and maybe that was the reason that he deleted these texts. So you've got a whole bunch of improbable scenarios. Just go back over some of the things that he's previously said. At one stage, he said the last time he saw her was at midnight, the night she disappeared. Then it was 4 o'clock in the morning. Then it was 5.30. You know, it took him 30 hours to report her missing in the first place. And when the cops finally did turn up, he said he was too busy to go along to the police station with them. So clearly Anthony Coletti's behaviour in the aftermath of Melissa Caddick's disappearance is uncontroversially bizarre and clearly contradictory. Would you say his evidence is illuminating any important contextual details leading up to what actually happened to Melissa Caddick? Or is this becoming a bit of a sideshow with no great value to the real questions that we all actually have? Yeah, I don't think uh, his evidence has shed any light whatsoever on this case. But that is not to say that he's guilty of anything in connection with her death. In fact, Melissa's family released a statement the other day specifically saying that they don't believe that he has done anything wrong. They're on his side. They're claiming that it's ASIC, the securities regulator, and the police who are at fault here, not Coletti. Has the coronial inquiry provided any further light or any more evidence about how Melissa Caddick actually died? Well, on that score, there actually, I think, has been a bit of a uh, positive development. There have been scientists and in particular an oceanographer who've given evidence at the inquest. And the oceanographer gave evidence that Melissa's foot couldn't have just been cut off and dropped off on the beach by somebody, which at one stage was one of the scenarios that she'd faked her own death, cut off her own foot and had somebody deposit it on the beach far down on the south coast. The oceanographer gave evidence that that was impossible. The foot had been in the water for some considerable time. The shoe even had barnacles on it. Stephen Rice is The Australian's New South Wales editor. This weekend, we'll see the Parramatta Eels battle it out against the Penrith Panthers to decide who will win the 2022 NRL Grand Final. The Australian will be there for all of the action, and for more, head to theaustralian.com.au. 
The Front is produced by Kristen Amiot and Harim Khan, edited by Tiffany Dimack and Josh Burton. Leah Samaglu is multimedia editor and music by Jasper Leake. I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts.